As a church, we're in transition. And so we're in our last teaching series as a church together with me as your lead pastor, your fearless leader. This is it. And one of the, one of the kind of the visuals I've had in my mind is passing the baton. And what's great about a track race and a relay race is that the faster guys come after the slower guys. Can I get an amen? And I'm believing I'm going to be passing this baton from one pastor to a next to a great man of God who will take you on a new leg of your journey. And what's great about a race is that for you guys, you're just getting started. I be- Paxson wants to preach with me today. See, I got that anointed prayer going. He's going to be a preacher, mama. You better watch out. He's going into ministry. I told my mom, I'm going into ministry. She was like, oh, boy. Oh, yeah. I believe, Crosspoint, that your best days are ahead of you, not behind you. I believe that, that this is not the end of your ministry, but merely the beginning of a new phase And I want to pass the baton of a great congregation to a great man of God. And what's happening is for Sherry and I is we're going to be starting a church from scratch in the city of Chicago. And so we're moving into Chicago. Yesterday I was in Chicago, found the apartment. So now we know where the apartment's at. And so we've been working on that. We're trying to lease or sell our house. Um, We're doing all kinds of things to get ready. But Crosspoint is also working behind the scenes. Crosspoint has a great search committee looking at resumes, listening to sermons and preachers and looking at that and praying about, hey, who are some candidates that we want to give to the elders to look at to consider as God's next man? We don't know how long that's going to take. People are like, hey, Pastor Josh, do you know who the next guy is? And I was like, no, but he better be five foot eight with a little bit of a beard, a little bit of gray, some, you know, four daughters. No, anyways, no, 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 I have no idea. And they don't either. And it might be four months. It might be six months. It might be even longer. Sometimes it takes a church maybe a year. But we've got great speakers lined up. You can be praying for the search committee. And so my heart is really, okay, how can I prepare you for that transition? How can I prepare you as a congregation to be ready-made for the next pastor? And so what came to my mind was an ancient summary of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's as old as the Protestant Reformation. And it's summed up by five Latin phrases. And those five Latin phrases are these. Sola gratia, which means by grace alone. Sola fide, which means by faith alone. Solus Christus, which means in Christ alone. Sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone. And soli deo gloria, which means for the glory of God alone. If you want to know what Christianity is, if you want to know what we mean by the gospel of Jesus, this is a great summary of biblical Christianity. So here's how it goes. It goes like this. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Let's all say it together. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And so last week we looked at, we are saved by grace alone, and we looked at grace. 
This week we're looking at sola fide. We are saved by faith alone. By faith alone. Now why would that be important? Why would that be important? Why is this an essential idea that we are saved by faith alone? And I thought about it in these terms. You know, people tell me all the time, Pastor Josh, people don't like change. You hear this, especially in churches. People don't like change. Don't you try to change things because people don't like change. You know, don't change. Don't ask people to change. And you know what? That's a big old fat lie. Can I get an amen? People love change. We change all the time. We change our socks. We change our shoes. We change our Instagram profile background picture. We, we, change our, we change our Facebook social media picture. We change our underwear. Hallelujah, we love change. Even if it's got odor-free technology, you're like, why are you bringing up underwear? Because I'm leaving. I can say whatever I want now. You see, I can say whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. So you see, odor-free underwear. We change our underwear even if it's got odor-free technology from Target. It doesn't matter. We love change. We love changing television shows that we watch. We don't change sports teams. But we change friends based on sports teams. Amen. Hallelujah. We change all the time. Here's what we don't like. Here's what we don't like. We don't like the way people try to make us change. Don't tell me what color socks to wear. Don't tell me where, whether to wear tidy whities or boxers. Don't tell me how to believe in God. You see, we love change and we know we need change. We're all human beings. We're filled with flaws. We're filled with insecurities. And we're trying to find the right method of changing. But, but it's how are we motivated by change? When it comes to being changed by God, when it comes to how do I find the inner motivation to change according to my maker and my creator, I have to choose my means of motivation. You see, the problem, the problem is that religion uses fear and judgment to change people. Religion tends to use fear and judgment to change people. In other words, through the fear of judgment, religion will say, God will judge you if you don't change. And of course, we're sinful and we listen to any kind of message of fear and judgment. We're like, well, I'm not going to change for that. If you go into the world, the world tries to motivate us uh, for change by power and status. And so the world will say, yeah, you want to change? You need power and status. You need, you need a power for your tribe and for your group and for your cause and for your thing. And... But when we come to this idea... This revolutionary idea, sola fide, that we are saved by faith alone. God gives us a whole new realm of motivation for change in our life. A new inner motivation to be changed. And that motivation is not fear of judgment, not power and status, but acceptance. That in the context of acceptance by God, free acceptance that's not based on works, that's not based on what you do, but based on what you receive in empty hands, you can be changed. The idea is, in our text, let me read the key verse of our text today. 
that I want to look at. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. I actually think that this verse might be the thesis for the whole book of Galatians. This public document written by the Apostle Paul and maybe the thesis statement for the whole letter of the book of Galatians could be found in this verse. Here's what he said. Paul said, yet we know, watch this, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What's he saying? He's saying that we are, in fact, I got a slide, Brad, you pop it up now. We, what he's saying is he's saying that I am justified by faith alone and Christ alone, not by works of the law. What's that word justify mean? It's a forensic word. It's kind of a boring courtroom word. It's like a word that belongs to judges and juries and, and somebody on trial. And to be justified is for God to declare, if I say declare, for God to declare that you are innocent. In the New Testament, even the ungodly are declared to be righteous, how? By faith in Christ. We are justified not by our works or our efforts or our performance or how pretty we are, how religious we are, how powerful we are, what our status is in culture or, or nothing like that. What God gives to us is he gives us a declaration that we are accepted and justified, made righteous, not by works, but by faith alone. This is radical. This is radical stuff. There was once a Catholic monk, Augustinian monk, back in the 16th century. His name was Martin Luther. I love that name Luther because my mama was Lutheran and so I'm like really attracted to that name Luther because I grew up hearing about Lutheran stuff. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? And Martin Luther was a Catholic monk and he was a part of a, of, of a monastery order that could read the Bible when nobody else was allowed by the church to read the Bible. Imagine that. And as he read the Bible he began to realize that he stood in the presence of a holy God. That he stood under the threat of the holiness of God and his judgment. And what he said was, as he realized that there was no possible way he could be righteous before God. And, the, and God demanded righteousness for entry into paradise, into the kingdom of God. That he began to resent God. In fact, he said, I did not love God, I hated God. And the reason why I hated God was because God was making an impossible demand on flawed creatures. God was looking at all of humanity and saying, it's impossible for you to fulfill the law of God. And he, he thought of God as like hanging humanity on a string and not even giving them a chance and yet letting them to live so he could just threaten humanity. And he kept threatening them, you better be good, even though God knew we couldn't be good. Because of original sin, because of our flaws, there was no way. And so he said, I hated God. But as he read through the Bible, he found something remarkable and ultimately life-changing. He found that there's two kinds of righteousness in the Bible. The first is an active righteousness. What's an act of righteousness? That's the righteousness I do. I'm actively doing righteous things. 
But the second kind of righteousness is a passive righteousness. That is a righteousness that we don't do, but that God gives as a gift. God be, or Martin Luther began to see in the Bible, starting in the Old Testament, that God offered these ideas that, that he could offer his own righteousness to human beings by faith. One verse, I don't have a side for it, but he was reading in the Psalms. And he saw that David prayed for righteousness from God as a gift, like Psalm 143 and verse 2, where it says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. But then David goes on to say in verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life in your righteousness. Now watch that. In your righteousness. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Martin Luther was like, wait a minute. God can offer to non-righteous people his own righteousness. Fast forward to the New Testament. How could a righteous God offer unrighteous people righteousness through the righteousness of Jesus Christ? He read Romans 1.17 where it says the righteous shall live by faith. He wrote out in the margins of his Bible, sola fide. Then he read Romans chapter 3 where it says in verses 23 and following, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, watch this, and are justified, justified means made righteous by his grace as a gift, everybody say gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is remarkable. Because what it means is, is that you and I never go to heaven because of any righteousness that we do. That we're not right with God because of something that we do or become. That we are made right with God, with the righteousness of God because of the Son of God. Therefore, we are justified not by faith plus works, faith plus sacraments, faith plus saints, faith plus works or any kind of liturgy or any kind of worldly status. We are saved by faith alone. And this can change the human soul. We are saved by faith alone. Scholars have a, a technical word for it. They call it double imputation. And double imputation means that when I believe in Jesus, what I deserve, Jesus gets on the cross. He takes my sin. He takes my unrighteousness. He dies as my substitute. By faith, he takes my guilt and my shame, and he dies for me on the, on the cross. But by faith in him, his righteousness is imputed to my account. His righteousness is given to me free of charge. You're like, why is that important? This is why it's important. It means that those who believe in Jesus are loved by God. Watch this. this is, man. Oh, man. I'm preaching better than you're responding today. It's about to get good in this place. It's about to get good. Okay, here it is. God loves you as if you lived the life of Jesus Christ. That's faith alone. God loves you as if you lived the life of Jesus. That means that in any given moment, your moments, moment of greatest failure, God does not love you any less 
Because his love for you is based on his love for his son. God the Father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased at the day of his baptism. And all who believe in Jesus are loved by God as if they had lived the perfect righteous life of Jesus Christ. There's never a moment in your life as a believer where you're going to be loved any more or any less than how the Father loves Jesus Christ. How important is this? It's huge. This is huge because here's what churches do. I'm telling you, some of you all know this. Praise God, Crosspoint doesn't do this, but we're tempted to do this. We drift into works. We start listening to people talk about spirituality. It could be charismatic spirituality. Well, if you're not talking in tongues, you're not very spiritual. It could be like, if you don't have prosperity, well, then God must not like you because you're not blessed by God. Or it can be legalistic, baptistic, uh, fundamentalistic kind of environments where it's like, if you drink or chew or go with girls that do, God does not like you. I added that God does not. That's a new part to that. <laughs> I just made that up. We're going to keep that line and use it in Chicago. You see what I'm saying? And spiritual environments and religious environments become very dangerous. Because now we're comparing ourselves with Sally and Joe and Fred and Bob and all the so-called super spiritual people. God must not like me very much. What if I didn't take my sacrament right? What if I didn't pray to the right saint about the right circumstances? What if I don't do it right? What if God doesn't like me now? But faith alone takes all that away. We are literally liberated in an environment, not of fear and punishment, but acceptance. And that is life-changing. You say, I'm not very religious. I don't struggle with charismatic or Baptist legalistic people. Well, then you're out in the world. And guess what the secular world is? It's a bunch of legalism. It's a bunch of you better look like this, say this, be a part of this religious or political party or better follow this person or whatever. You got a whole apparatus of social media of comparison and fantasy and fantasy land and everybody's feeling left out of place. And I'm not at the beach with my husband like she is. Bunch of comparison and people insecure. No wonder depression is through the roof right now. Why? Because we're trying to save ourselves as opposed to surrendering to the love of God. Well, I say too much. So, we are saved by faith alone. But why is this important? I mean, if I'm, if I'm handing off a church, and I'm, I've kind of already told you why it's important, but I'm going to tell you more. And if I'm handing you off to the next pastor, he, I guarantee you, wants a congregation that believes that we are saved by faith alone, by Sola fide. Why would that be? Let me kind of get more specific using the text. This is when it really kind of the realities of justification connect to the realities of our life. But let's go back to Galatians chapter 2. Let me pick it up in verse 11. Let me give you three reasons why this is so important for a church and, um, and why it's so powerful in a home or in a marriage or in any relationship. This is so important. Number one, justification by faith alone liberates us from the fear of man. Ooh, I need to be liberated from the fear of man. I'll bet you there's somebody else in here who needs to be liberated from the fear of man as well. Look at this, verse 11. 
Paul says, uh, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, Cephas is the given name for Peter. Remember, Peter was given the name Peter as a nickname by Jesus, but his given name was Cephas. So this is the apostle Peter, and Paul just said that he condemned Peter to his face. Why would he do that? Verse 12. For before certain men came uh, from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the uncircumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And you're like, what's going on, right? I mean, it's like, what is going on? So here's what's going on. Jesus comes in fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. He is the Messiah according to prophecy. He dies. He defeats death. Peter knows and has preached that the way to be saved by God is to repent of sin and believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Peter's been preaching this for a long time before this event even happens. But Peter is a Jewish guy. And what the Jews struggled with is some of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they also believed that there was no way you could be justified in the presence of God without being circumcision. Everybody say, ouch. Clip, clip. You pagan Gentiles, you need a clip, clip. Right? The other thing that Jewish people believed is that there's no way you could be justified with God if you ate the wrong foods, if you're eating off the wrong menu. And so these Gentiles, of course, they've been enjoying pork and bacon their whole life. They wake up in the morning, what do they make? Bacon. They, they, want, they want lunch, it's pigs in a blanket. Can I get an amen? We're Gentiles, this is what we do. And so what happened is Paul is planting all these churches in Roman cities and to all these pagan Gentiles say, hey, Jesus is the way to the one God. And Gentiles are believing in Jesus and they're having church. But when they have their newcomers lunch, guess what they're eating? Pigs in a blanket. That's how you do church. And so what happened is, is the Jews are uncomfortable with this. Now, Peter knew. Because God had shown Peter in a vision. God said, what I declare clean, do not consider unclean. And so Peter went and preached the gospel to a Gentile and ate with him unclean food because God declared that food clean. So when Peter comes to this church of Antioch filled with all kinds of pagans who have believed in Jesus, and they're eating at the, at the table, Peter's like, let me join in. And Peter's like, bonk, bonk, bonk. You know what I'm saying? He's just, he's just chowing down. But then the circumcision party came. You know, it's kind of like you got the Republican Party. Nobody say amen. You got the Democrat Party. Nobody say amen. And then you've got the circumcision party. And they're spying out the freedom that this church has in Jesus Christ. That they're saved by faith alone. And Peter being totally consistent with this character, so bold when it's convenient, but when other people start coming in, what does Peter start doing? He gets intimidated, and Peter starts backing away, like, I didn't eat any bacon. I didn't hang out with those dirty old Gentiles. I'm not sharing table fellowship with them. 
And then Barnabas starts getting in on the act, and he's like the happiest, most encouraging guy ever in the history of the world. He starts backing off from the Gentiles. And that's when Paul, it says, he rebukes Peter to his face. And why is Peter rebuked? It says there in verse 12, because he feared, everybody say feared. He feared the circumcision party. He based his life on what other people thought of him. Tim Keller, in his commentary on this very passage, says, we all, I mean, you know, it's not like Crosspoint's ever going to have the circumcision party come in and like, hey, you can't have bacon at your next men's breakfast. Like, that's never going to happen. And if they do, it's going to be like, dude, seriously, you need to leave. I mean, <laughs> that's just crazy. But, but here's the thing. The principle we all struggle with, Tim Keller says it's like this. We're all trying to manufacture self-esteem. Watch this, man. Man, I'm about to preach. We try to manufacture self-esteem based on what other people think of us. We, we try to steal self-acceptance off of power and status and money and sex. We are trying to self-justify ourselves. And that's why we're all walking around as people-pleasing people. And we're in bondage. Paul says to Peter, bro, what are you doing? You're an apostle. And by the way, if Peter's going to struggle with this, I guarantee you we are going to struggle with this. What are you doing? You know that what makes you right is not some party of legalistic religious people. What makes you right is faith alone. What makes you right is not a cathedral or brick or mortal or literature or liturgy. What makes you right is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. How does this work out? I'll tell you how this works out in a church. This gets real practical. You go to life group. You're sitting there. And what do our life groups do? They meet in homes. They eat food. Hallelujah. I won't say it, but sometimes they eat Bacon. They drink non-alcoholic drinks. They pray. They talk about the sermon. They read the Bible. This fall, all of our life groups are going to start back up. You need to join one. It's important. But here's one of the things our life groups do. Our life groups take prayer requests. And people pray out loud for other people in our life groups. And what inevitably happens in a context where other people are praying is we always have Sally the prayer warrior. Oh, and Sally, when she lifts up a prayer, it is so spiritual because Sally is such a prayer warrior. And we go, oh my gosh, I want her to take my request because, man, when she prays, there's no split infinitives. The grammar is perfect, and she seems filled with the Holy Ghost. And we're like, she must be really loved by God because look at how spiritual Sally is. And what do we end up doing? Well, I'm not going to pray out loud. Because when I pray out loud, it doesn't sound like Sally. I don't, I don't want to experiment with this idea of spirituality when I can't do it as well as Sally. What does justification by faith alone mean? 
It means you're as loved by God as if you had lived the life of Jesus. And what does that mean? That means when you lift up a prayer, it might not break, God, it might not break people's hearts in your life group, but it will reach the heart of God. It means your prayer is just as spiritual, as meaningful. And as opposed to being intimidated by what other people think, we can get, start getting bold and explore our spiritual life. Fast forward to your deathbed. There you are. You're laying there. And God gives you the moment to consider your life and whether you've made your peace with God. I just was talking to a guy the other day, and he said to me, Pastor, I asked him, I said, hey, man, how can I pray for you? And he's like, Pastor, just pray that when I die, it's really fast, and I don't even have to think about it, right? But not all of us are going to have that. We might have a moment, and we're sitting there, and we're laying there, and we're wondering, wait a minute, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm about to, I'm about to, I'm about to go face God. I mean, like, like, how do I know I made my peace with God? And, of course, who are you going to think about in that moment? Sally. And did I pray enough? Was I spiritual enough? And you know what justification by faith alone gives you? It gives you security. It gives you assurance because Jesus paid it all. And we are liberated from the fear of man. And man, I can tell you as a pastor, I need this every day. Because of course, I want to live in the expectations of what other people want me to do, not what God's calling me to do. What's the hardest thing for a pastor to do? I'll give you all some insight so you can bless your next pastor, as you've blessed me. But a pastor is constantly struggling with, man, I need to do my ministry according to everybody's expectations. And let me tell you something, that's a burden. Everybody say burden. That's too heavy. Because there's no way I am going to live up to everybody's expectation. Guess who I'm supposed to do my ministry for? For God, according to the gifts he's given to me. And as I live under his expectation, I find that he and his burden is much lighter. His yoke is easy in comparison to, to me trying to imagine what other people should think. We need a church liberated from people-pleasing to people serving, from people pleasing to spiritually engaging God by faith alone. So important. Churches are ripped apart by legalism. Churches are liberated by faith alone. So, number one, I got two more points. I got to go through them really fast. Sorry. Number one, we are liberated by faith alone from the fear of man. Number two, we are liberated from the fear of judgment. Look at what he says. Now, let me come back to this, this word justification. I want to make sure I ground it in courtroom ideas and forensic ideas. Because sure, we're declared clean by faith alone. But Paul wants to make sure that we know that it's not about cleanness. It's more about being declared righteous. He says in verse 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, we just read those. Here's the thing. You and I, you and I are going to stand before God, and he is the one judge of all people. This is what we have to declare in our churches. There's one God, he judges everybody. There's no other standard than the law of God. The law of God is good from Moses, Ten Commandments. 
But the law of God is incapable of changing our hearts or motivating us to change. Any more than me looking at a speed limit sign motivates me to slow down. How many of y'all look at, oh, I better slow down. Sometimes I look at a speed limit sign, and I'm like, that is a rule to be broken. Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> 25 is a ridiculous speed limit anywhere. You're like, what about the children? Well, keep them in the house. I don't know. <laughs> Joking. That's terrible. I should not have said that. But I'm leaving, so it is what it is. But, you know, I get nervous, and I don't know. I mean, look, we're all going to face God. This is the, this is the declaration of, of the Bible. You got a maker. He's the judge. We're going to stand in his court. You're like, that's a mean thing to say. No, it's the best thing I could possibly tell you. And about, I don't know about you, but I get nervous in court. Not that I've been to court a lot, but I have been to court. How many of y'all been to court? And it's nerve-wracking. Have you ever been to traffic court? That's nerve-wracking. I mean, you face a judge, and he's just doing, like, traffic stuff, and you're nervous. You're like, I'm, I'm sorry, I went 65 and a 55. You know what I mean? One time I had to go to court for my cat. Yeah, I said it. Bella the cat. No, well, Bella was. I was living in Oklahoma and my Bella the cat, I love Bella. I mean, I'm not crazy about cats, but I liked Bella. She was okay, a little orange cat. And Bella would get out and go into the neighbor's yard and the neighbor didn't like this. So the neighbor, mean lady, rather large, came over to my house and she, she pounds on the door. And she said, Bella, your cat keeps coming into my yard. And, she, and I, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Sherry will vouch for this. She literally said, I have set cat traps to catch or kill your cat. I'm like, interesting. <laughs> I went, well, good luck with that. And so that night I said, Bella, I'm going to let you out now. Let's see if those traps work. <laughs> I let Bella out. Bella goes out. Bella goes over there. I go to sleep at rest. Like, this should be an interesting outcome. I don't know how it's going to turn out. Let's see. I sleep peacefully, totally at rest in the sovereignty of God for Bella's life. I wake up the next morning. Boom, boom, boom on my door. I open it up. I got coffee in my hand rather large lady, standing there, and she goes, your cat came over into my yard again. And I was like, did your traps not work? What? She goes, I'm going to turn you in. And of course, I don't, I mean, are there cat police? I have no idea what that means. So I was like, well, good, turn me in. And I admit, I wasn't a very good witness at this point. I just was kind of like, sweet, you know, and I shut the door, you know, and I get a ticket. I can either pay $75 or go to court. I'm going to court. And I stand before the judge. Sherry and I are dressed up. I'm nervous. There's drug dealers. There's people. And they're lined up. And they're going before the judge. And they finally call me. And they're like, Gutteridge, I stand there. And he goes, does anybody stand in accusation of this man over Bella the cat? And guess what? My neighbor didn't show up. And the judge said to me, you can go home now. And I was like, great. And I went home. And I let Bella outside. It was the best feeling I've ever had in my life. It was the best $75 ever saved. But here's the problem. When we stand in the court of God, sin will be there. 
so will the accuser, but so will Jesus Christ. And when we stand before God, we will stand guilty, condemned. But for those who believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we will be declared righteous. That's why the Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not, what? Perish. That's why Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we are justified by faith in Christ, not by works. You see, we are liberated from the fear of judgment. We don't live under that hammer anymore. We live in the liberty of forgiveness and reconciliation and justification and adoption and transformation and sanctification. We live under the realities of all the things that faith gives to us. Perfect love casts out fear. And there is no more perfect love than God giving us his son Jesus as our righteousness. Why is sola fide important? Why is faith alone important? Because it liberates us from the fear of man. It liberates us from the fear of judgment. And finally, it liberates us from the fear of failure. The big question of this doctrine is, well, if you preach this, if, I mean, if you say it's by faith and not by works, well, then people are going to, they're going to live in license and they're going to take advantage. And Paul, he deals with this. Look at verse 17. Let me wrap it up. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Here's my favorite verse, like in the whole Bible. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if the righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now quickly, what he, what's he saying? He's saying, yes, the church is going to be made up visibly of two different groups of people when it comes to faith alone. Some will say, well, faith alone, I guess I get to joyfully go out and just sin as much as I want to. It doesn't matter what I do or what my lifestyle is because I'm saved by faith alone. Thank you, preacher, very much. I'm out and I'm going to go do whatever I want. And Paul says, man, that is a false faith. Because the faith that saves is what? The faith that saves is the person who says, I've sinned against God. I'm guilty. I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit. I, have, I am separated from God. And yet I see that Jesus died for me. And I want to give Jesus my sin. I've been crucified with Christ. My old man is up on that cross. My life of loving sin more than loving God is dying with Jesus and now it's Jesus in me that's my identity. I form my identity not on what I think of myself, not on what other people think of myself. I form my identity on who Jesus is. My spirituality is not a program or a formula. My spirituality is not some mystique, hocus pocus kind of thing. My spirituality is the person and the work of Jesus. I am identified with Jesus. And now the life I live, I live for him. And the reason why Jesus removed my sin 
was not so I could continue to sin. The reason why Jesus removed my sin is I can begin to explore what a life lived for God looks like. I'm going to fall. I'm going to stumble. But I hate sin because Jesus died for it. What's the difference between me before I believed in Jesus and me after I believed in Jesus? Well, it wasn't perfection. I'm still jacked up and flawed. And The difference, though, is that in being born again and loving Jesus, I hate it when I fall. I hate it. I have guilt. And I yet have the freedom and the forgiveness to give that guilt and to remember Jesus died for that. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives. It's no longer my self-generating power or self-generating manufactured self-esteem or it's no longer me that's trying to generate religiosity by fulfilling the law. No, no, no. I've gotten Josh out of the way so that I can live freely in the love of Jesus and that love is going to change my life. And it might not be about perfection, but it gives me a new direction. I've been crucified with Christ. So I'm not afraid of failure. I'm not afraid of failure. If I fall, it's forgiven. I feel conviction. I ask God, give me a new day. Give me new mercies. Help me to experience your love so that, so that I can have a relationship with you, God. I need you, God. That's what Christianity is. Christianity is a great exchange, Martin Luther said. My life for his. My sin for his righteousness. My unholiness for his holiness. The Christian life is not a me change. It's an change of being identified with Jesus Christ. I am saved by faith alone. Sola fide. I'm justified by faith alone in Christ alone, not according to works. Amen. Why, do, why is this important? Because I want to hand off a pastor of a people that's not afraid of people. It's not afraid of judgment. And that's not afraid of failure. That will bless him. So here's how it goes. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, According to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Say it with me. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. According to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. We'll talk about Christ next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this church. It's a great church. Beautiful church. A spiritual church. Not because we're a church that pretends to be strong, but because we admit we're weak. We are strong because we are willing to admit we absolutely need your help and strength to get through the seasons of our life. Lord, we want to be spiritual in admitting that in transitions we need your help. Remind us that our acceptance by you is not based on our performance, but based on faith alone. And may that be a new motivation for change in our life, an inner motivation of love that helps us to explore and engage and learn and pray and read differently, engage differently. Lord, bless this church with that kind of freedom and liberation. 
Lord, if there's somebody here who's not been born again to a living hope, Lord, awaken their heart to a relationship with you. Give them the ability to place their faith, their trust in you and in your son, Jesus, who died for their sins and defeated death. Give them that grace so they too can be liberated from the fear of man, the fear of judgment, and the fear of failure. Make us new people and a community of new people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.